Nature Works podcast. Conversations with extraordinary guests who are working to protect, regenerate, and better understand the natural world. With your host, Mike Weeks. Welcome to Nature Works podcast. In this episode, I'm interviewing the fascinating Octavia Hopwood. Octavia is a soil microbiologist and ecologist with over a decade of experience researching real-world applications of soil biology and also making some pretty fascinating and compelling short documentaries, which is how I found her when I was doing my usual of scanning through YouTube looking for information on soil health. And it's soil health and farming and agriculture and the need for an entirely new view of how we support and enable the planet to have healthy soil. It's all of that that we talk about in this episode. We also touch on the fact that Octavia, when she's not working as a microbiologist, she is also a stunt woman, which is, I think, probably quite some rare mixture of career choices. Anyway, if you enjoy this episode, and why wouldn't you, because the guests are fascinating, please share with other folks who care about our planet. After all, it's the only one we've got and the only one that we can call home. Um, We always at NatureWorks try to provide honest and unbiased insights into how we can help protect, restore and regenerate this planet. And we'll really only protect what we care about And these conversations hopefully inspire respect or maybe even a little love for the little blue dot that we all live on. So I always start these podcasts by recording straight out of the bat. And a a lot of people try to actually get on calls beforehand to introduce themselves and find out what I'm going to ask questions about. But I actually think it ruins the flow of the and the excitement of meeting somebody for the first time. Yeah, which which this is so. Um, for our uh, now 2,200 listeners, um, and hopefully uh, growing, we've only been around for a few months, but we're getting there fast. Um, I actually found you, Octavia, on YouTube when I was uh, wasting time when I should have been working, looking at uh, videos on soil and soil, <laughs> micro, soil microbiology. And um, I, all of a sudden there's this, I find this video with this captivating young woman walking through like some sort of uh, uh, and i mean this genuinely like a kind of david bellamy cross what's the lady who's the famous chef who does the very sensuous cooking um do you <laughs> know what i mean yes <laughs> yes it was it was not david bellamy dave mattenborough by the way not bellamy uh and so <laughs> i'm sure my age yeah. and um and i was like oh my god this is what you want soil microbiologist to be Tele- presenting to the world as rather than stuffy old men with uh, glasses on and grey hair. So uh, first of all, thank you for agreeing to be on this podcast because I, I know I just cold called you or sent you a cold message. Um, it's an absolute pleasure to have you on. I've watched all your vi- videos. I've been stalking you online. Um, but I'm going to start by asking yeah. you this question first is, are there two Octavia Hopwoods? Is there the soil microbiologist and a stunt woman who does major movies, or is there only one who does both? <laughs> yeah, that's um, it's a question I've actually been asking myself for a long time. How do I combine these two people? Because I did 
think it was kind of like almost two personas um but no it's just there's one octavia hopwood and she does both and it's something i've been wrestling with but kind of come to terms with and i think you know everyone needs diversity in their life and you know you've got to have some outlets for fun you've got to have some outlets for service and you know passion and um, that's what soil is for me so yeah they kind of they they contradict each other sometimes but and um, they are both me <laughs> so just to be clear it was a real question and then uh because oh. i went on your instagram and i saw your sort of car racing and i know you're rock climbing and all that so i assumed that you'd done your stunt have you got a stunt license is that are you a registered yeah so stunt? I, I am awesome. part of the the british stunt register um uh, yes yeah so we we do a lot of film and tv um in fact yeah i've just come back from filming now um last night um working on something down in london um, so yeah, it, it's kind of a side of me that's like the more creative side, but I think, you know, that's why I really got into making the YouTube videos was because as you said before, you know, soil is a lot of times about stuffiness and, and, you know, this old generation and maybe a slightly older way of looking at things. And I really wanted to bring like just a new wave of education and, and creativity to it. So, yeah. yeah, my only criticism is there's not enough of them. Yeah, no, I, I, I got through <laughs> them real quick and then carried on scouring. But I assume that if they're not on your on your own YouTube channel, then I'm not going to find any more. Um, they you you have a you have a uh, I've been I've worked in TV and I've worked in TV for a number of years. Did the whole Soho thing, made a couple of TV series that were big successes, and I know what it's like in front of the camera, and behind the camera, and you you're an absolute natural and. I think in um, in the the domains of wildlife and conservation, um, and where I'd like to talk about today as well for part of this interview, farming and the likes and and soil health. I mean, there's no one really out there. It's from a, a youthful perspective um, who is enticing people in to better understand what's going on in uh, in soils. And this this is this. Um, uh, interview is actually very timely. Last night I went along to a presentation by a chap called Zach Bush, who's a medical doctor and uh, famous certainly in the US as one of the first people who started alerting the world to the health problems that come from this. Do you know who Zach Bush is before I go? Uh, I'm not heard of him, to, no. No, you're not heard of him. Uh, you're, wait, Google him after this. But anyway, he's one of the first medical doctors who really started looking at health problems from a soil perspective. And especially looking at the data and how lots of neurodegenerative diseases in children and old people across the age ranges um, increased as the use of glyphosate in the soils started to increase. And so you can you can track almost identically the increase in all of these neurodegenerative and autoimmune diseases as we start to put these deadly chemicals into the soil. So I was watching that last night and he was talking about how important it is to get people of a younger generation. And I'm assuming you're sort of what, mid twenties, are you? 24? Uh, 30, but thank you. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. Well, you look <laughs> remarkable for that. Okay. Um, uh, so, 
you'd appeal to a, a younger generation. I'm an old man over here in Bali. Uh, I'm closer to 50 than I am to 40. Um, always forgetting where my keys are, you know, or children or, uh, or my wife. Um, so, so I'm, I'm excited to have somebody like you on here because I've actually, I'm having multiple conversations with people like, how do we get people interested in soil health at a younger generation? Cause it's easy for old people like me who have, um, who maybe have more of a sort of lean towards farming and agriculture and even gardening because it tends to be an age-related activity younger yeah. people aren't sure. gardening right younger yeah. people aren't really thinking about and here in bali we have a critical problem which is that there's no young farmers okay. our farmers are all in their 50s and 60s and 70s and 80s and no young people want to do it so uh, it was a real for me it was like a moment of like oh shit there's actually somebody who's, I, I, I assumed you were like in your early 20s, who's credible and superb on camera and she's doing it. But I want to see 200 of these videos. <laughs> yeah, well, exactly. And I think that the problem is, you know, soil is not sexy um, and people are, you know, we're, we're focused. I think society is set up so we are focused very much on pursuing careers and you know, we've got social media that's constantly kind of telling us that we need to be these people. And I think it, it's taking us away a lot. You know, as you say, in Bali, you know, there's not enough young farmers. It's the same here. I, I'm, I live in Wales in the UK and um, it's exactly the same story over here. Um, I think with farming, there's, you know, there's just not the money in it at the moment. Um, and that's that's really not drawing the younger crowd in. Um, but from a, a, a soil perspective, I think we've, I think what I've kind of boiled it down to in, in my research and in what I've been looking into is that we, we, we've lost kind of a connection with the earth. I think, you know, soil, it's all very well educating people about soil, which was sort of why I started the YouTube channel alongside, um, I worked with a, a Swedish company and we, we sort of joined forces and, and started them. But now I'm sort of thinking, well, why don't people want to look into this? And I do think it's because we've lost touch with the earth, almost in every sense, you know, in terms of a spiritual connection to the earth. We don't, we're not connected. Our hands aren't, aren't physically touching the soil anymore. So, you know, we go to the shop and we buy our groceries. We're not relying on, on the soil. So I think from a spiritual point of view, we're not connected. Um, people don't know what good soil looks like anymore. You know, what, what when you stick your hand in, into soil, like what's it supposed to feel like? And I think, you know, maybe a few generations back, my grandparents or great grandparents would have maybe inherently known that, but you know, it, it we as a, a younger generation don't know that. And I, I don't think it's any fault of anyone's. It's just the way that society has sort of led us really. So yeah, I think it's this notion that we just, we need, we need love for the earth again, and we need love for our bodies. We need love for the food that we're putting into our bodies. And it's this big ecosystem and a big sort of web that all ties in nicely, but it, it kind of starts for, it starts with caring for everything. <laughs> I, so I couldn't agree with you anymore. Um, I had about 20 points where I wanted to jump in and, <laughs> and interject that. And, and, and let's start with the fact that people have lost this connection. And of course, one of the major reasons is industrialization in cities. And you don't come into contact with dirt 
in the、mm. city, and in, and if you do, you're probably rushing to clean it off. You know, it's、uh, it, you go into to the supermarket if you buy carrots and they have dirt on them.、Mm-hmm. Most people are going to avoid those carrots with the dirt on. The carrots <coughs> we get here in Bali, which come from the mountains because we can't grow them here where I am, right by the sea. We have a farm here, and we'll touch on that.、Um, but the carrots here, they come covered in dirt. And、we、yeah. give them a loose brush off, and then I give them to my kids to make sure that their immune systems getting all the、mm. benefits of some organic soil from up in the、yeah. mountains. But that's um, you know, our food is packaged and processed so heavily. The animals that we eat, most people who eat steaks and burgers and chickens and fish would never kill those animals, and they've never actually been in fields with them. They certainly wouldn't rear them. I mean, I we have chickens here, and I struggle to kill. The chickens that are meant to be for the pot,、mm-hmm. um, because you sort of, you know, if you've got any kind of empathy or or compassion, we kill them quickly and cleanly.、Um, and of course, we'd be hypocrites not to, because otherwise we'd be buying them from the local organic butcher.、Mm-hmm. So、um, there's a there's a real disconnect, and、uh, and I th- I don't think that that is going to change any day soon. So. Uh, I guess the reality is, is that there are small pockets of people who are doing everything they can to raise the alarm about the issues with soil.、Um, before we get into that, though, because I've got a list here of, of questions in relation to that, how did you actually get into becoming a soil microbiologist? Because I saw that you grew up in Shropshire, surrounded by wildlife and this beautiful part of the world. You've you've moved further west into Wales, have you? Where where are you in Wales? Yeah, we're right on the coast as well. We're sort of as west as you can get. Pembrokeshire. Or, uh, no, Abbotsford.、Uh, uh, yeah, okay, yeah. lovely. Yeah. yeah. So you've got plenty of climate. You can go to Gogarth and all those areas around there. It's beautiful. <laughs>、um, so, how did you get into soil microbiology? I mean, what what compels a young woman,、uh, smart, intelligent, to get into so- soil microbiology instead of Instagramming, or you know,、uh, or I don't know, go and work in the media, not as a soil soil microbiologist. It's quite a unique. It's not unique, but it's quite a niche field, isn't it? Yeah, it is. I think、um, I, I was very lucky and fortunate that my parents、uh, were a great influence on me. They're both, you know, mad on on wildlife and the environment,、um, and, and sort of they're they're quite open to sort of curiosity. So they were always sort of, you know, showing us things. And my dad can't. He still doesn't now. You know, he, he is like a five year old picking up logs. <laughs> it's that like child childishness that I think. You know, we sort of lose as adults that he has retained, and and that really kind of impacted me. I think.、Um, and they also have a small holding, so I grew up with sheep and chickens and、um, growing vegetables and stuff. And then, so I, you know, I, I always grew up thinking I want to do a career, or I want to have a career that impacts people, that has you know service that gives service to people, and.、Um, You know, combining it with my love for the environment, I thought, oh, I'm going to go into environmental science and become a consultant or something, and so that's what I did. And I had this amazing lecturer,、um, Peter Abrahams at Aberystwyth University, and he, he his research was mainly into、um, human health and soil science. <clears throat> and for me, when I went to university for the first time, I, I didn't have any idea that. Soil could really impact humans in that way, and so this kind of really captivated me. And it was like this whole new subject that kind of opened up in front of me. And I, I started connecting like dots of, okay, so soil is you know 
good for human health, it's good for plant health, like really it underpins everything. It, it's sort of like that barrier between the physical world of, you know, this is just a lump of rock floating through space, and then the bio, biological world that's, you know, grown and evolved on the planet. And it, it's like that barrier between the two. It's a, it's a buffer, I guess. And I kind of, you know, I was amazed by this, and it really inspired me. Um, and I am a lover of food and growing and, um, you know, ha- having your own animals and things and I I just thought but I need to learn more about this from a personal point of view as well as you know as a career and so it just sort of emanated and then years down the line I I meet this guy from Sweden and his name is Joseph Winter and he set up a a company Um, he's basically devoted he's like he's based he he bases a lot of his work on um, on various different you know gay Gay Brown and um, Elaine Ingham and people like that, um, but he has sort of devoted himself to finding out how can we manage soil in the best way. And he really inspired me when I worked with him. Um, so yeah, that sort of fueled the fire even more. I was just listening to uh, Gay Brown's book yesterday, actually on audio. Um, what is it? Is dirt to something or other? Um, yeah, and it's. Soil. Dirt to soil, that's right, dirt to soil. And it's just incredible. And it just all sounds so obvious, doesn't it? That, yeah, actually, it's not that it sounds obvious. It sounds so absurd that we would look at farms and which were only 100 years ago, natural ecosystems, buzzing with life. And that we wouldn't see over a short period of time, 20, 30 years, that every time that we add uh, chemical syn- um, and synthetic fertilizers and pesticides, especially the pesticides and the herbicides and that we start tilling the land and leaving it without a cover crop for certain periods of time and that we're not allowing the animals to forage and it, it, it blows my mind that people weren't able to see the sort of devastation that it was affecting not just on the biodiversity but also on the ability to grow crops themselves you know it's like there's a there's a blindness obviously caused by the marketing of these these monoculture chemical input type well big companies like monsanto um i can talk about monsanto because they're not going to sue me because they don't exist anymore but bayer bought them up and you know it's like one of the most evil companies on on the planet um but have you so have you worked in the farming industry or what does it what have you what do you do as a soil, soil microbiologist i mean did you go straight into tv with it um, so, I mean, I've tried everything. I, I basically, I'm like one of these little soil microorganisms trying to find their niche. Like, that's the analogy <laughs> I can give. I, you know, I've tried a bit of everything. But yeah, so I, I trained as a microbiologist and I, oh, I'm currently, um, I'm currently writing my thesis actually now um, for, for my PhD. But um, I, I worked as a consultant and we'd advise um, different a whole range of different projects really some agricultural you know we'd we'd have a look at the soil and and sort of advise on on better soil practices um but also looking at soil types for creating habitats what habitat um can you create on this soil um so that so it, it was very varied really what i did i don't do it as much anymore because i'm now kind of wanting to focus more on education and kind of getting this message out there and I mean you know I think a goal of mine I I would just love to farm like I look at Gay Brown I look at these 
farmers there's a guy down the road that has a farm and I love what he does and I would love to do that but getting into it uh in the UK you know house and land prices are just absolutely crazy um there's just no way someone of my age can get into it without mm. having that background so you kind of need to channel yourself in different ways and and that's yeah sort of the direction that I've gone down so I have a love for agriculture I'm currently trying to get our university we have we've got probably about three or four farms at the university and um I love the university that I I work at but <clears throat> they which university is it Aberystwyth University in Aberystwyth. Wales yeah. Yeah. They, they seem to have quite a conventional look you know into farming and I I'm trying to persuade them to to start a regenerative farm uh, on on their campus at the moment um but how that goes down I don't know <laughs> because you know although it, it's starting there's like a bit of momentum starting to come in the the world of regenerative agriculture I think a lot of people are still warming up to the idea and you know especially the, the older farmers who you know they they've they've got their traditions they've got their culture as it were and it, it must be very scary for them having people come in and say you know we need to do it like this, we need to do it like that. So yeah, it, it's kind of interesting here The the shift is starting to happen very slowly. It's so, uh, well, a lot of Wales is cattle farming, isn't it? Cattle and sheep and the, and the likes. Yeah, sheep, um, there's, there's a lot of sheep farming. All the land that's sort of the higher land, the, the uplands, um, you know, which some, some of which would have had tree, you know, trees on it, forest. Um, that's all sheep pasture now, um, and I mean, yeah, I don't it's know. Not, who... I, mean, I mean, I mean, I guess it because one of the um, concepts of regenerative agriculture that actually surprised me was that by grazing cattle over the land, you get much more deeper carbon sequestration mm -hmm. because the root system re reacts to the the pro the cropping or the grazing from the animal, and as the roots get deeper, they bring in more carbon. Um, and then also you get all of the manure and the manure is fertilizing and all the treading and all of that sort of stuff. It's like the, um, even though sheep aren't a natural, uh, an indigenous species to somewhere like Wales, there is still a benefit to them being out there and constantly grazing over this land. I guess the, the, the issue is, is that with cattle farming is that you don't really have the biodiversity that you might have if you were just letting it grow again and into trees and and the likes you know we so we took on a an acre of rice paddy fields here nine months ago our plan is to take on another 40 acres next to it but we're in phase one and we were told we would not be able to grow crops on it for quite some time because all of the uh, the rice paddies are flooded every two or three many two three four times a year uh, when they're flooded as they as the waters um, are drained they take all of the minerals and all of the soil components and you'll know more about this than me but what you get left behind is kind of a clay because they've been doing it for 20 30 no 50 years right so most of the mineral content goes away there's very little nutrients in the soil more importantly or as importantly when the rice is harvested and the straw is left over they don't compost it they burn it so you get a bit of potash uh, which mm -hmm. has silica in it but other than that all of the carbon's burned and all the nitrogen's released and 
and the likes. So you end up with a very depleted area of land. But anyway, we took it on. And actually our approach, because we're not a commercial farm, we're not in, we don't care about how much crops we produce. We're actually, the whole project is to see how quickly we can restore the soil so that we can bring back biodiversity and crop diversity and soil health. And in the last six months, we've been spraying microbes all over the soil. This, these come from a Professor Ali Zum, who's uh, in uh, Indonesia, Jakarta. His PhD is in microbiology. And he created, he's patented this, uh, it's 18 different microbes and molds. We've been spraying them all over the land and we've been spraying them in our waterways. And we've got the Garden of Eden out there. <laughs> it's, it's gone <laughs> bonkers there's just stuff growing everywhere and it took about five or six months for the soil for the microbes to actually i guess attach enough nutrients do enough of what the microbes do and you know in areas where we had first planted some tomatoes in the first month and they just diseased and the tomatoes were tiny and they looked terrible now without any fertilizer we haven't put any other fertilizer we haven't put any um any compost on there just the microbes now we cannot keep up with the amount of tomatoes that are pumping through and they're healthy and robust and before we're all every single tomato has fruit flies in them none of the tomatoes have fruit flies in them though and i guess that's because the the microbes are enabling the plants to just take up more nutrients they're becoming more robust more resilient and just way healthier so uh, that's only in six months and that's using microbes and so yeah. this is one of one of the reasons i was so excited about you know having a conversation with you because i uh, i have a sort of theory that uh, that uh, well first of all if the un is correct in its assumptions that we only have 50 or plus topsoils or harvest left you know i think that's i think that's probably specific to certain areas but is indicative of the problem you know mm -hmm. certainly within 50 60 70 years if we don't fix the problem it's just yeah. too big um and how do we do that on scale and i just and I, i'm interested to hear your thoughts for me it seems like if these microbes work so well and they also can break down a lot of the chemicals in the soil and i'm not just talking about the ones from this particular supplier i'm talking about microbes per se then surely that's a solution that we could be spraying over damaged lands all over the world and starting to restore in bulk because you can use crop sprayers to spray this stuff yeah. So you could be spraying microbes. I, I wonder what your thoughts are on something like that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, in fact, the company that I worked for in Sweden, that's kind of what they do as well. They, um, it's, it's like giving your body a shot of, you know, pr uh, probiotics. You know, it's, it's giving it that boost. And, you know, a lot of what humans do is, it, particularly in like the Western world, is treat the, the symptom treat the the cough or the you know the the lack of nutrients in the soil but what we really need to do is be treating the cause why why are there no microbes in the soil what is going on here so i think yeah it, it's it's exactly that put microbes into the soil but then you've also got to create an environment where those microbes are going to thrive because they're not there for a reason and so i think one of the big things for me is keeping a keeping plants in the soil if you can that's like i think number one like in in trying to keep those microbes because not only do those plants provide a, a physical stability um for the soil you know they're, they're literally holding that soil in photosynthesizing they're producing carbon and a lot of that carbon goes down into the soil 
and is feeding the microbes. So in the rhizosphere, that sort of area around the roots, you've got this little climate really where microorganisms are thriving off of sugars produced by those plants. Um, and it, you know, when I used to live in Shropshire, it's a it's a really agricultural area. There's a lot of arable fields, um, and I used to drive down the road in the winter. And after a heavy rainfall, you'd get uh, sort of flash flooding coming down off the fields and going onto the roads, and the water would be brown. And I kind of just take took this for granted, as I think many people do, uh, you know, because it's what I've seen my whole life. But one winter it suddenly clicked with me i was like why is that this water is brown because there are particles of soil in here you know this soil is literally being washed off off the land and you look up in the field and you know it's just bare it's been plowed in the autumn or whenever and you know there's not a cover crop or a crop being planted on it and so the soil is literally washing off you know so that's where this this degradation is is or partially is where it's happening is it's literally being blown off or washed off or whatever so i think keeping plants in the soil is kind of like the, the almost the key factor then once you've got that then to boost it spray on the microorganisms spray on the microbes and kind of and, and kick start that cycle and eventually you know over time they'll start to find their own balance you know the the protozoa will will suddenly increase in population and and start to nibble on all of the bacteria and then they'll decline and then you know it, it it kind of equalizes itself out i think that's something that i've found with nature or, or you know is apparent with nature is it is it finds the balance wherever it can um and you know will it the, the ecosystem will thrive we just have to kind of give it that little helping hand so that those microbes can do their job they can you know um extract minerals from the from the um the soil and they can feed the plants and you know they can aggregate the soil and create amazing soil structure so yeah it's just about giving them that helping hand yeah we see it here with um uh so the the water system here is is called the subak system and it's why it's a uh, further up where the source of the subak it's actually a, a unesco world heritage site the the water that comes out of the springs in the mountains here it feeds all of the rice paddy fields for i think it's thousands of miles of the island's not thousands of miles but the network is over mm -hmm. a thousand miles of tributaries that have all been actually put in place to feed the rice paddies but the the local farmers rightly or wrongly they typically if they see a single plant growing in the subak or on the walls of the subak they take it out because they are concerned that it's going to take up their precious water supply and we have this beautiful corridor that goes from our office into the to our farm at the back and within about uh within about three to four weeks the walls of this corridor are covered in i've i've used an app to look at every single plant there's 16 different plants that grow on this wall there's probably more but there's 16 i've identified but the <laughs> i guarantee within the next couple of weeks i have no control over this area um the next couple of weeks somebody will come through with herbicide spray it and then they just it just goes to back to a stone wall again yeah. but within a week or a week and a half boom the plants are even with all the herbicides that they're spraying they're coming back and here because we live in a greenhouse essentially in bali it's there's always water there's always heat 
It's always warm. You know, I've put a sweater on maybe twice in the last two years here. Uh, not I'm sat here with a hot water bottle on my lap. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm very jealous. <laughs> yeah, not trying to rub it in. I mean, you may prefer you know, temperate <laughs> climates, but I like I like the tropics. But it's uh, it's uh, very obvious to see how nature's constantly trying to claw its way back. And and you know, if you just leave it alone, it's uh, it's very capable of doing so. Um, yeah, I mean, sorry, I was just yeah. you know, when whenever you've got an area, and I think this is another thing that you know people kind of well, not necessarily don't realize, but you you add herbicides to an area or you plow an area and you're basically simulating a massive catastrophic natural event, you know, like a landslide or a volcano eruption, you know, a new lava field. You're taking the ground back to ground zero and you're going to get those, those weeds, those first successional plants come in and habitate because that's what they do. And so, you know, you put weed killer on, you're just going to get more weeds. So I think, yeah, you... You don't want to be taking it back to, to day zero. You want to be sort of working with nature and and sort of yeah, working with that successional phase. Yeah, look, the most the most um, compelling part of me just the learning about microbes and and let me just be clear for anyone listening, I am a complete beginner. I mean, I'm not as beginner as most people who probably don't even understand it as microbes in the soil, but I'm a beginner in my journey of utilizing them and understanding how they work and and being a big fan but the most compelling part for me was actually reading studies that showed that microbes given enough time will actually break down all of the herbicides and pesticides that are sprayed in the soil and will break them back down into component parts and they decouple all these chains of synthetic molecules back into their elements Uh, Mm -hmm. so you know that for me was like ah there is a because I've I've read the the reports on, and I don't know how exaggerated they are, but on on uh, glyphosate, and now it's almost impossible anywhere in the world to not find traces of glyphosate in mother's milk. It's been tested everywhere, right? Even in the Amazon, um, it's like somehow because it's windborne and it's you know, um, and so this stuff, which actually I you know it's fresh on my mind because I went to this presentation last night. It blocks. Uh, one of the very specific amino acid chains that enable amino acids to be made to reproduce cells and that's its job is to block amino acids and so it does it in all mammals uh, humans included but um and it can last in the soil and it can last in the food chain for tens decades maybe even hundreds of years but with microbes it gets its ass kicked and they come in and their their channels are not blocked because the micro the molecules are actually bigger than they are i guess and they're able to break this stuff down and and um, redisperse it so uh, one thing i was going to ask you and i should probably ask it at the start actually is um for the idiots uh listening to this i mean myself really and probably my closest friends but the, for the uneducated i should say uh on soil what actually is soil made of like what how do you define soil because we we take it for granted right it's there but what is it yeah that's a it's a good question um so soil is is basically made up of soil particles so that's mineral particles um and they are often categorized by their size so you've got different sizes basically um sand silt and clay is the common descriptive terms for those mineral particles um then you've got water um, another key component uh then you've got gases you've got then the organic 
sort of matter. So this is compounds that are made by microorganisms. Um, so or not just made by microorganisms, but they are organic um, molecules. So you've got things like humus and um, humic acids and fulvic acids. Um, basically, humus is like a massive sponge in a way. So it, it can hold on to massive amount of water and, um, and nutrients and things. So you've got those organic compounds. Then also you've got the, the living component of soil. So it's not just this sort of like mineral component you know, of soil that comes from the bedrock. That's only one part that contains like sort of your your macro and micronutrients, things like magnesium or, or zinc, whatever, they, that comes from the bedrock. But then you've got this living portion, the microbes. And, and this is the thing that people don't realize is soil is, it's not a thing, it's an ecosystem. So it, it's like sort of the rainforest or, it, you know, it's like this huge, great big, underground ecosystem made up of all these little you know components and microbes are a huge uh, and quite fundamental component of soil because they really convert that um, unobtainable nutrient source from the bedrock or from these tiny little particles from the mineral particles and they make it available for plants who then you know feed the rest of the food chain so so the bacteria will will decompose sort of organic material you know you, you have a, a carcass of something that's died or um a sort of leaf matter or whatever in the autumn uh, and the bacteria come come and sort of chomp away at it and they're breaking it down into those organic particles um <clears throat> breaking it down and then building these these other organic molecules that then sort of create that structure so when you're looking at soil you know, and this is why I think Gabe Brown sort of titled his book Dirt to Soil was because, you know, you get you can get dirt, which is the mineral particle. It's like that sort of quite light, rock solid in the summer, um, dusty in the sorry, rock yeah, rock solid or dusty or whatever in the in the summer, um, sort of block, uh, light in colour, no texture, like really dense, solid. Um or on the other hand, when you start to incorporate the organic matter into it, you get this really rich, dark, chocolatey colour soil, which is much more sort of crumbly and aerated and it's got like aggregated particles in it. Um, so yeah, that's sort of, that's soil. <laughs> and without the microbes, it's just dirt. I started enjoying the way you were describing all that because it was like watching one of your videos again. But you, you're obviously so passionate about it it just starts to, to come through it and that that's the that was by the way is the reference to um the nigella laws she's so passionate about food and she puts this it's like there's um there, there's just a and i'm not talking about the kind of how she's idolized as some sex symbol or something but i'm talking about the way that food becomes emotive and I, I love the way that when you're describing soil, it becomes emotive rather than just clinical. You know, <laughs> like when you're talking about the honey, yeah, I could listen to you talk about it in that way for some time, to be honest. So, well, you know, um, like I think that's the thing is is giving giving organisms like characteristics and giving them, you know, they are beings in their own right. It sounds totally hippie, maybe, but you know, once you start to think of other organisms as living beings and you really start to care for them then you you do you treat them like 
I don't know, mem- you know, I've got a beech tree in the garden and it's a member of the family. It's there mm. and it's present and it changes. And, you know, so, yeah, you, you start to notice these things. <laughs> You've just reminded me of something that I was going through a couple of weeks ago where I'd... So we, we dug a pond on our farm because the water that we're allowed to take is very polluted. It's had tens of miles of travel through all the rice paddy fields, but it also comes partially through the city in places and therefore there's a lot of um here a lot of sewage goes directly into the subak which goes out into the ocean you know it's a very uh, old out of date sewage system Uh, not for all of it but there are plenty of houses that just put their wastewater and their sewage straight into the subak um we get a lot of garbage coming down the river we have we've put garbage traps in and we pull all of that out every single day i mean bags and bags i mean big builders bags excuse me every day um and so we on the farm the first very first task we dug a uh eight by eight pool pond so that we could channel the water into it we could then clean that water ourselves using microbes but also using uh plants and so i am a i don't know if you know much about uh, these plants but i i am obsessed by vetiver which is an indian grass that is used all over the world to Um, restore soils because it will grow in pretty much anything and it has a hugely deep root system and it will go down to it can go down to 15 16 feet even in dry am i preaching to the converted no okay good Uh, (laughs) just in case you turn around and say i did my master's in vetiver um uh, so so we've got vetiver everywhere and then there's another plant that we put and we put that in the pond and it, it absorbs a huge amount of the toxins and we also put this other plant in called water hyacinths and we started with just a couple of these little plants. And within about a month, the entire pond, actually it's not a month, about six weeks, the entire pond was covered in water hyacinths. Like, but there's no room on top of the pond. It's not getting aerated. They've, it's, just, it's actually clogging up the channel in. And so I started pulling this stuff out. But because I'd been literally from the first little plant that I put on the pond and I'd been watching it every day and appreciating its flowers, I had this bizarre moment where i felt really guilty for pulling the water vetiver <laughs> uh, sorry the water hyacinth out of the pond to dry it and i, I, I like literally an like an emotional response to it like i was killing a chicken or something yeah. you know and and i think um part of that is because so you know i grew up in a city i've spent most of my adult life in beautiful places because i was a rock climber full-time for over a decade and the likes and um but never before have I actually been so connected to the land as I am on this farm where I am putting something in the ground in its tiniest form and then watching it flourish and grow or struggle and feeling something. <laughs> so yeah. I totally get what you're talking about with your tree. And without trying to anthropomorphize these these other entities, I do think that that part of the big problem with our environmental crisis is that lack of seeing ourselves as part uh, as connected and i don't i don't mean in some woo-woo way but we are absolutely 100 deeply connected to every species on the planet how could we not mm-hmm. right every breath we take has bazillions of atoms in it that that uh, a monkey in the forests of borneo has taken recently you know and all of these other remarkable kind of connective facts so yeah your your mention of the tree 
<laughs> reminds me of me and my water hyacinth, which now, by the way, is all completely dried and there's about half a ton and there's chicken feed. So uh, we are we are utilizing it uh, in in the absolute right way. Um, you've worked in or you volunteered in um, the British sort of wildlife uh, uh, reserve so over, when you were younger, right? So different reserves. Yeah, I mean, when I was younger, I I just used to take, I mean, you know, university degrees here, I don't know what it's like over in Bali, but university degrees are a little bit of a joke. And you get your degree after three years, but really, I mean, a lot of the time you are spent not doing anything. So in that time, I was like, I'm going to go and volunteer for everything I can. And um, yeah, so I went off and, you know, we've got loads of different reserves. I mean, I, I do you know, like you live in a kind of a beautiful part of the world. And, um, and yeah, I just, I wanted to spend my time doing something good and also kind of getting experience and, and learning, you know, what plants were. And cause I, I came from a family that loved nature, but I still, I didn't feel like I had that knowledge. So yeah, I sort of soaked it all up when I was younger and, and tried to volunteer for, for everything that I could. <laughs> what, did, what did you do on those reserves? Cause I am a absolute british wildlife nerd and <laughs> and i and here in bali where actually the biodiversity unfortunately is not it's, it's good up in the mountains you've got monkeys there's a huge amount of snakes in fact one of my dogs killed a snake this morning in the garden typically usually i get to them first killed a small cobra usually i get to them first and remove them from the property but she obviously took a disliking to it we have six rescued dogs so oh. uh, um, <laughs> snakes don't last very long in our garden but um you know i i have a I'm not very nostalgic, but I am nostalgic for British wildlife. And one of my um, uh, regrets, if I don't change it in my uh, years ahead, will be that I didn't go into enough of these, of the different wildlife reserves. I went to Slimbridge and a few places like that, you know, like the Wildfowl Trust. But uh, where, did, where, where did you volunteer? Um, so I, I volunteered at um, a place called Bolton which they are a red kite. Uh, well, it's the red kite feeding centre basically but uh, you know a while ago in Britain we we lost you know huge numbers of red kites and it, it was one of the places that started bringing them back um, at, oh, we've got hundreds now like you can't drive down mm. the road without seeing a red kite yep. um, so that that was one and then another one um, was called Innes here which um, is sort of just up on the um, the Dovey estuary in Wales and, um, and that's sort of like a mix of ancient oak woodland and um, and wetland as well and, and it's kind of got this amazing mosaic of different habitats um but the amazing thing in wales is we've got these and it's kind of what i'm doing my thesis on actually we've got these <clears throat> habitats called temperate rainforests um and they, they stretch all the way from scotland and they kind of go right down the coast um but in Wales, they're, they're known as the Celtic rainforest, and this this reserve kind of has features of those Celtic rainforests. So it's you know hugely diverse. Um, you've got the this ancient sort of oak woodland with you know tons of different flora and fauna and ground cover, and um, you know the soil again is is amazing. Um, and then you've got the wetlands as well. So you've got birds, and I think they, they've where, where, you said they they range from Scotland down the coast. Mm. the the where are, where are those exactly so they it, it's anywhere basically that is on sort of a westerly a westerly coast and then the other sort of 
topography sort of features that they have to have is that they've got to have sort of steep sided ravines anywhere where it can sort of trap like a microclimate of humidity moisture warmth anything like that so you get these little pockets of woodland um yeah a lot in scotland and um and in wales and also actually down in the south um southwest of the country down sort of um devon a dark dartmoor sort of area you know that that southwestern area i lived in the uk for over 20 years of my life and traveled around everywhere never knew that we had rainforests where is a temperate <laughs> rainforest found globally look at that it's all and also lots of them all over ireland as well they are absolutely honestly i would recommend going to visit they're magical places not not as a you know you're not going to go and see monkeys and uh, and snakes and things but you go and they are places and um they just feel magical you know there's this this real ancient connection of like you know you can see why people you know are believers in myths and legends because these fairies i'm looking at a fairy glen right now um and and i mean i say that loosely there's no fairies in it but if you sit here this is exactly what those kind of arturian legends you know you expect i don't know you expect merlin to come walking out of these lush looking ferny i mean i've been to these places i just never knew they were actually um classified as temperate rainforests in in the uk what sort of wildlife are you likely to see in these places um from a a large mammal perspective um you know we we don't have a huge amount here you know anymore um it's mostly going to be things like birds um birds sort of small reptiles and things. we get we do get you know particularly in this reserve actually that i worked at um you know species of snakes and things but it's mainly the the plant species that is sort of the outstanding um feature of this habitat i guess you've you know you've got ferns that are you know incredibly rare you've got bryophytes and and you know the mosses and things um and and then the the fungal um population because you know fungi are so overlooked because we can't we literally can't see them half the time um but yeah the, the fungal sort of populations are also one of the sort of the yeah defining characteristics is that is um fungi something that you study as a microbiologist as well yeah, for, to, be, to be honest, fungi is the main thing that I, oh, is it? I'm studying at the moment. Yeah. Ah, okay, because I'm a big it. fan of Paul Stamets. And oh, yeah. You know, and obviously I've, I've seen the, uh, I've watched it twice actually, the Netflix documentary, um, uh, which is fantastic, Fungi, I think it's called. Yeah. Um, and uh, obviously he's big on the psychedelic use and version of them. Um, there's a lot of, I've actually got friends here who own a company in the US that's, now the first approved psychedelic or psilocybin supplier for PTSD and the and the I mean the results they're getting are absolutely dramatic and remarkable um but the one thing I really enjoyed about uh both the Paul Stamets documentary and also some of his presentations is this is learning about the fact that you've got these mycelium networks under the forests and under the land that are I mean, if you were to assume that they are one organism, they're the biggest organisms in the world, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, they're, you know, they're, they're tiny. They're, they're sort of, they're one cell thick, these hyphae or mycelium networks. Oh, oh is that right? One cell yeah, thick? Oh, I didn't cell. know that. Oh, so you can't see them? No, um, well, no, you can only see them in bulk. So, you know, when you get sort of um, a, a lump of wood or something that's decomposing and you see like a sort of a white filmy sort of... Uh, 
fluff almost it looks like that's sort of thousands of strands of this this mycelium network um and yeah as you say you know that you can they, they can stretch for miles in a lot of cases they don't but but they do make up some of the sort of the biggest organisms but the the reason why they are so um sort of important and it comes down to them being so small is they are a lot smaller than plant roots so <clears throat> up to about 90% of plants rely on fungi or sort of have some symbiotic relationship with mycelium and with uh, sort of mycorrhizal fungi um, and and basically the the fungi are able to extract minerals and nutrients from the soil and exchange it with the plants the plant uh, plants are amazing they can they're the sort of the only organisms really well bar other a few other species but plants are able to photosynthesize and create sugar uh, fungi can't do that fungi um they're, they're like us they need to consume um sugar in order to grow so they have this amazing sort of exchange of nutrients and water uh, for sugar um, so the fact that they're so tiny they are able to get into all the spaces that plant roots can't um, and plants such as orchids you know you look at the roots and they're they're off like that you think how how the hell are you surviving but it's because they're making these symbiotic connections and you know i think that's almost what we need to do you know we need to remember that we're all part of this big symbiotic network we've got thousands of fungi in in us i have to be really careful at the lab that i don't you know breathe too much on any of my samples because i'm going to be contaminating them with all of the fungi that are you know in my mouth or you know on my hands or whatever so yeah they are incredibly important there's an interesting theory i don't know if it has any how credible it is maybe you've come across it and that is and i think i i saw it on the stamets video that they that um, fungi have come have hit the earth on an asteroid or on comets or the likes so they've come from because there's something about their dna that shouldn't be here like it doesn't fit within within the mapping of anything else on the planet and so there's a that, yeah there's this theory that they've they've accidentally landed here and that they've actually been a a causative factor in the diversity and the growth of life on the planet um i quite like that idea i i reckon though that it's probably arisen from somebody who's on psychedelics at the time <laughs> wondering how the hell. yeah <laughs> yeah i've not heard that actually but i mean they have they definitely have, you know, contributed and they were one of the major factors why plants, you know, grew in the way that they did, you know, initially. Um, and yeah, they really, they're another one, you know, I mean, you get many different types of fungi, you get the ones that sort of decompose stuff, you get the ones that, you know, form these symbiotic relationships with plants. You earlier talking about um, organisms being able to break down chemicals. There are fungi that have, um, in fact, I think it's a variety of oyster mushroom that has been, um, scientists have been able to um, allow it to grow on um, on cigarette butts and it's managed to decompose those cigarette butts. There's fungi that can sort of decompose oil, you know, so they are absolutely incredible. And we've really not tapped into their, you know, their full potential. Yeah, I think this is why, you know, it's so important to conserve these species and to, to make sure we don't lose any more. And, you know, we preserve this diversity because actually 
the amount of resources that we get from fungi, you know, have been have have really led to human civilization being here and being as as prosperous and you know um, and doing as well as we do. If you think about things like penicillin, that you know has come, that is a you know a mold, um, you know rising bread with yeast making beer you know we really do rely on fungi there's the stoned ape theory you, do you know yes, that one uh, i have yes. i think it's terence mckenna isn't it that, that first posited the fact that the, and yeah. there's a whole book i read this book about 25 years ago i was probably stoned at the time um <laughs> but basically that that evolutionary jump that we can't seem to find the missing link for in between our very basic early human version and the current version and he posits that by eating lots of magic mushrooms that would have been around at the time that our brain development just super accelerated yeah um, i've seen sheep in the shetland isles who are who have clearly i mean i've been in the shetland isles and filming a tv series years ago and there were so many magic mushrooms on the floor it was like it had snowed I mean, I've never seen anything like it. You know, uh, Liberty Caps. They were, at, we, you, and there were people up in the hills with just sacks on their backs, you know, picking these things. And I think it was before it was really de uh, criminalized as a uh, as an act because you used to be able to pick them. You just weren't allowed to eat them. Yeah, I think yeah. you know, back in the whenever before it all changed. But, um, but the mush, the uh, sheep in the Shetlands, are clearly eating vast amounts of these magic mushrooms because they're. <laughs> They're not discerning between the grass and actually they're probably quite tasty to a sheep. But <laughs> I remember setting up this base camp for this TV series we're making and looking at the sheep around us. And some of the sheep were standing there, I kid you not, for 20, 30, 40 minutes without moving. Just <laughs> standing there. <laughs> rocks. Looking. <laughs> looking around. And I just thought that sheep was like, probably eating about two pounds of psychedelic mushrooms, you know, <laughs> and is currently wondering how it can communicate with these strange ape-like creatures yeah. who are putting this tent up, you know, in its field. Um, but, in 10 uh, yeah, years, the... it's, you know, their brains will end up growing and there'll be some other stoned ape theory for sheep. <laughs> exactly that, exactly. So um, I, I saw you're a rock climber, you're a diver, you're, um, you, as you alluded to at the start, you do stump work as well. Yeah. How yeah. do you balance all of that then? Because you're doing a PhD. What's the PhD in? Um, the PhD is looking at sort of plant pathology, but sort of from a fungal perspective. So it, it's really sort of looking at diseases in, in trees and in ecosystems, particularly these Celtic rainforests, um, and looking at the fungal diversity and what is affecting that fungal diversity. So I, I'm really looking at... Um, sort of compounds from agriculture so things like fertilizers and um and nitrogen and you know they as you said earlier like they can blow on the wind they they when they go on the ground and go into the soil they, they either leach off or some of them are volatilized off um and um, and end up sort of being deposited by rain in habitats miles away um so i'm sort of i'm having a look at that um, but yeah, sort of balancing that then with the, the is, is there a is there a practical application to that afterwards? Is it purely academic, or is is there a something you've got a hint of usage of it for? Um, to be honest, actually, no. It, it, it's purely as a as a an interest, and I really wanted to get into science again. I really wanted to sort of 
learn how to research properly and, and learn how I could get into to sort of soil science. And I, I went for another PhD and uh, at Rothamsted University, and um, that was looking at metrics of how to measure soil health, because I think that's, that is going to be in the future something that's really going to help, I think, with uh, with farmers and well, with everyone managing the soil is going to be looking at how can we measure soil health but I had to turn it down because um, well actually I didn't I didn't get it in the end I think I argued too much in the interview <laughs> because um, I realized that they were being funded by you know some company that I did not want to be involved with so <laughs> oh, <good laughs> I, for you. I completely you. blew that interview because how, just... how rare how rare are modern scientists with some ethics that's uh, that's very unusual <laughs> so look you you realize how um how much of an anomaly you are that you're a that you're a uh, a soil scientist doing a PhD in a field like this and then you're also a stunt woman right or a stunt person that's a bizarre it's a it is that's a slightly odd combination different if you're doing stuff in your spare time i guess but because most people who become stunt people that's their full-time career isn't it and they're not typically also sharing it between doing academia i know a few stunt people um and back in the good old days when people used to make a hundred grand a stunt you know uh, mm. r rather than now where i think it's all got a little bit more diluted um but i'm just curious because you're a mum as well aren't you yeah, yeah, I have a... Yeah, story. I saw, I know that because from your Instagram or one of the, play, you know, <laughs> one of, we've been doing our stalking. How do you balance all of the, like, how does that work being a stunt woman and a, and an academic? And do you, do you find that you have to have very different identities moving between them? You know, in the same way that you, I mean, as a mum and a, well, as a father, you have to have a different identity moving from father into, you know, boss and manager and all yeah. that kind of stuff but yeah. they're, they're quite extremes and I wouldn't normally bring this up but it but it is very odd it's like the extreme ends <laughs> of of career paths yeah academic looking in a microscope and person jumping off of buildings and and you know probably yeah. do you do martial arts as well and all that sort of stuff yeah you have to do a martial stuff. art yeah so yeah. I did yeah kung fu I think yeah it's a very interesting thing because it, it's something that I've like wrestled with for a long time is, you know, how do I balance two very different personas and characteristics? But I think what underpins it is like a love for storytelling and for um, for conveying things across to people. You know, I love, I love the thought of inspiring people. And I, I think, you know, film and TV and adrenaline kind of has this, this one side to it. I love adventure sports. I love um, you know, being outdoors and, and I mean, driving is not really associated with climate change. Well, it is associated with climate change for the wrong reasons. Um, but it, yeah, I think, I think everyone's got these personalities and these characteristics and it's just finding ways to balance them in your life, I think. But for, for me, it's definitely the storytelling that sort of, that underpins it all. So, yeah, <laughs> but it is sometimes my partner's like, tearing his hair out at me because he's just like what are you doing like you just pile us on but i i think it keeps life interesting and it keeps it fresh and yeah i i can't say I'm anything like when i had to write my the biography you know for this or my a little intro about myself i'm like what do i call myself mm. I, I just don't know what i am but yeah I, i'm just me i guess and <laughs> i would have thought though that you're a marketing man or a marketing company's dream um being 
uh, combining such a physical career path with an academic career path because typically people neglect one or the other maybe until later years you're like you're a modern day renaissance woman aren't you if you're doing that do you speak five <laughs> languages as well you were probably got oh i wish no yeah. i i need speak to learn welsh, welsh. Yeah, you need to learn uh, Welsh. Yeah. My son's going to start speaking Welsh, and I think I need to learn before I have to help him with his homework, or we'll be doing the homework together. Yeah. It's a remarkable <laughs> language. Well, I've lived in Bali for two and a half years, and my uh, sound recordist and cameraman behind here, who is Indonesian, can attest to the fact that my Balinese, or rather my Indonesian, <laughs> but it's remarkable, isn't it, my Indonesian, Mika? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. He's <laughs> nodding with a big smile on his, on his face. Um, Octavia, it's been a pleasure speaking to you. A real pleasure. Um, I am. I. I, I kind of want to dive deeper into this, this piece about these different careers, but it's not really where we go to on this podcast. I'm actually doing a, a, a human performance podcast as well um, in the coming months, and I'd love to get back on that and talk about stump work and everything, and yeah. climbing and, and the likes, and more deeply how you, how you do balance between having to have so much focus on academia and also keep yourself in such incredible shape as you need to for being a stump person so uh, but we'll save that for another conversation thank you so much for coming on oh, um, thank you. It, it it looks like you've got sunshine out your back window now so not too much to complain about in well yeah I mean, we've it? Had what's the temperature we've had a, it's been minus six in in the mountain <laughs> and uh, yeah <laughs> it, there's a heavy frost outside so i'm like Oh, I know. I'm gonna to have to put some thermals on. I think. <laughs> yeah, our air conditioning actually is uh, is a little bit turned down in here as well. So I'm gonna go out and get. I think we're 31 degrees today, so it's oh, actually a little nice. bit. Oh, I am jealous. <laughs> it's been amazing having you on. Thank you so much. We'll put all of your yeah. links to your videos, which I hope you do more. I really do. I genuinely mean that because I showed them to my kids and they love them as well. Oh. Um, so we'll put all the links in the show notes. Well, thank, thank you, you so much for having me. Very much yeah, for been... your time and um we'll reach back in the future. Awesome. Oh, thank you all very right. much. Take care. <laughs> thank See ya. you. Thank you. Yeah. Bye. Bye.